You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Well, we're continuing our series in Matthew, so if you've got a Bible and want to turn to Matthew 27, we're going to look at the first half of that chapter today. And then Friday night, uh, Sean will lead us in looking at the second half of that chapter. And a week from today, Jay will lead us in looking at the resurrection story in Matthew 28. So if you want to turn there and just look together, uh, I want to read through this long passage because it's, it's such an incredible story that Matthew puts together here. Matthew 27, starting at verse 1. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and elders of the people made their plans to have Jesus executed. So they found him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said. For I betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, Well, it's against the law to put this in the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy a potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That's why it's been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set in him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd was gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah, for he knew it out of self-interest they'd handed Jesus over to him. When Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who's called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood of upon us and upon our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged 
and handed him over to be crucified. And the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. They knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe, put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. The word of the Lord. And you reply. You reply. Thank you. Yes. It's a good custom. I did a memorial service at St. Matthew's Anglican. It just reminds me that thanks be to the Lord for his word. It's our job to ponder and to receive that. Look at these passages. The chief priests and elders made their plans to have him executed. They bound him, led him away, and handed him to Pilate, the governor. Now, when I think about this, when they hand the temple people, hand over to Pilate, that would be like Nancy Pelosi working together with Donald Trump. I mean, it's absolutely incredible that these people who are complete enemies in everything would work together in the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. It is astonishing. Pilate was a strong man who hated the Jews, hated what he was doing when he was assigned to be pro the governor. And he did all kinds of power plays to push Roman power into the Jewish thing to the great response of the Jews. And now they're going to work together. They bound Jesus and turned him over to Pilate. I look at this and I think, you know, here is Jesus bound before a temporal ruler so that believers can be loosed in front of an eternal ruler. Jesus is participating in all of this by cooperating with the evil forces set against him. It's an astonishing reality. Astonishing reality. Judas has absolutely fascinated me as I pondered this passage. Because you see, it says here that when he saw Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. Why then? Wasn't that his plan? Why was it that seeing Jesus condemned caused him to say, oh my gosh, what have I done? And there's all kinds of possibilities because none of the Gospels tell us Jesus' motive. Maybe he was trying to get Jesus to actually step up and be the Messiah who would overthrow Rome. Maybe he thought it would not be so bad. Maybe he's trying to get Jesus out of the way so he could become the leader. I mean, we just don't know. But whatever it was, when he saw Jesus condemned, he was seized with remorse. And look at this phrase here, seized with remorse. Well, that's, a, that's contrition. 
When I see that he's saying, I've sinned, betrayed innocent blood, well, that's, that's confession. He's saying, I did, I'm responsible. When I see to the chief priests and elders, that's who you confess to, is to a priest. And when I see returning the 30 pieces of silver, I see restitution. Was Jesus forgiven? Was Judas forgiven? When we get to heaven, will we be met by Judas? Caesar remorse, confesses sin, returns the money. I mean, he does a lot of good stuff. He does a lot of good stuff. But you know, I look at this, and look at the next thing that he does. After the confession, after the contrition, after the restitution, and the next thing he does is he goes out and hangs himself. Now, to be clear, sin is, or suicide is not a mortal sin. If you're a believer in Jesus and you kill yourself, there's lots of reasons for doing things. It's an act of ultimate despair. But what he did there, what he did there, was ignore the reality that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What he did there was notice that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. There's lots of passages like this. And what he forgot was the words of our Savior. Come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That invitation to come to me. And so we see is where Peter, we see the difference between the broken heart that renews in Peter. Jay took us through that last week. And we see the despairing heart that ruins. Because see, a broken heart in the context of Jesus, there's hope, even in the midst of the ultimate torment of what's going on. See, despair lets go of the hope. I think of memorial services that I've done here recently, and what I've found myself thinking is that believers can go deep into the grieving because they're the foundation of hope. But something happened with Judas. So, where Peter repented and returned to Jesus, Judas despaired and ran away from Jesus. See, and that difference between the two is huge. That difference between the two is huge. The despair, I get that. I get that. The sadness, the overwhelmingness, the suicidal thinking even. I get that. But what's your foundation? Pope John Paul put this way in a cross-shaped thing. Don't abandon yourselves to despair. We're an Easter people, and hallelujah is our song because we rest on the foundation of who Jesus did. And I think of our context we're at today with so much despair in our society. A year ago, today, we got locked down with COVID and all the stuff that's happened, and many people have gone off into despair and lostness and loneliness, as Judas did. We're an Easter people, and the key thing is to remember, key thing is to remember, so important in this message, 
is forgiveness is free for anyone who will come to Jesus. Anyone. No matter what the sin. No matter what you've done. No matter what brokenness. No matter what kind of PTSD or trauma or there's healing and forgiveness available in Jesus. There's healing and available here at Grace Community Church as a mission of Jesus. And I want to speak to you the hope that comes in Jesus and his community through the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's a responsibility on us. We have to turn to Jesus. He invites, he calls. But we have to go. So like Peter, who saw Jesus and came back to him. That's what I have to do even in the midst of the despair. The story goes on. I've sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. The priests say, what's that to us? Now remember, they're the ones who are trying to kill Jesus. Judas came and they said, yes, here it is. We will give you 30 pieces of silver which is the price of a slave that valued Jesus no higher than slave. What's that to us? It's your problem. And that's exactly what they said. That's your responsibility. We take no part in it whatsoever. The shepherds of Israel have said to a despairing man, forget you. They have forgotten the lesson of mercy. They have ignored the commandment of justice. They reject Judas. They reject responsibility. The devil's lie? <laughs> Trust yourself. Don't listen to anybody else. Don't let anybody in authority. Like, come on, stand up. Be a, be a big boy. Trust yourself. You can handle it. That goes clear back to the garden. The devil's lie is be your own person. Trust yourself. Do your thing. Be yourself. Be authentic. It comes in all different forms. And boy, that serpent's hiss is everywhere in our society these days. But you see, we see it in Judas. The devil's condemnation. The devil's condemnation is you've got to handle this on your own. Nobody cares about you. Nobody will help you. See, the devil's lie becomes the devil's condemnation. And that's what Judas experienced, and it literally killed him. I'm thinking of stories I've done helping people find hope in dark times. And the key is to recognize the trust yourself, be authentic, be yourself is actually the serpent's voice. We desperately need each other. The story goes on. They picked up the coins against law to put in the treasury since it's blood money. They, they realized that. This is money used to purchase innocent blood, and it's a grave sin under Jewish law. And they recognized that. So they bought a potter's field. Again, they reject money, and they reject responsibility, just like they rejected Judas and responsibility. They carefully observe the minutiae of the law. 
oh, we can't use this money in the temple, we have to use it for something else. But they completely ignore the more important mercy of the law. See, and that's what happens when religious systems go bad, and they often do, is they all worry about the details of legalities, and they just don't care about the mercy. Fundamentalism, which I grew up in, in Albuquerque as a junior high, high school, and I rejected it completely, thinking I was rejecting Christianity. Because what happens in that context is you can't show mercy to sinners because it condones the sin, or seems to. You must sow justice, you must punish the sin so that people would be afraid. But see, what Jesus says is we show mercy, we care for the person, and then we bring grace to them so that they can be freed from their sin. It's not condoning sin. That's a whole different problem. It's helping people. But so often, mercy precedes confession, repentance, and restoration. These people just forget it. Forget it. They want nothing to do with that. So they fulfill what Jesus said back in Matthew 23. You teach the law of Pharisees, hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, dill, cumin. I mean, you, you tithe right down to the seeds in your cabinet, but you've neglected the more important message of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should practice the latter, but not neglect the former. See, and that's part of our message here at Grace Community Church, is we want to be a church of grace, not tolerating sin, not tormenting sin, but helping people find freedom from the bondages of sin, helping find hope in the midst of despair. That's what we want to do here at Grace. They use this unclean money, bought an unclean place for unclean people, which points out the reality that Jesus, unclean death, redeemed unclean people so they can be fully accepted, forgiven, and cleansed. See, he went into the horrors of all the unclean, all the defilement, all the shame, all the guilt to bring us the freedom. That's what Jesus did. That's what's happening in this story. I look at this, and one of the things I do when I read narrative is I try to put myself in the story and say, what's the expression on people's faces? What's the tone of their voices? What's the guy over there doing? What's, what's a woman over there looking at? Within imaginative involvement within the limits of the story. So I ask you, what's Pilate's tone of voice here when he looks at Jesus? And says, are you king of the Jews? He surely didn't say it like that. How did he say it when he said, I wish there was a small discussion here so we could do this. But the way I read it, the way I read it is, are you king of the Jews? Are you kidding me? I thought it'd be somebody like amazing. But that brings us back to Isaiah 52 and 53. We're talking about the coming servant of the Lord, the Messiah. There was no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in appearance that we desire him. Despised, rejected. And that's what I hear Pilate doing. You? 
Really? You said so, Jesus said. See, putting the words back on him. And we wonder, is Pilate confessing something here? Because maybe he's saying, you, you're king of the Jews. I don't think so, but this could be a beginning of a confession because the Ethiopian church holds Pilate as a saint because they believe that he converted in the context of the trial. I don't think that's the case, but it's just, how do you read these stories? He gave no answer. Don't you know the testimony they're bringing against you? And again, not even a single word. And Pilate responds to him. The eloquent teacher who could dazzle crowds with his incredible sermons. We've looked at a number of those. Looked at the parables in Matthew 13 just recently. He didn't say a word. Not a word in self-defense. One of my life verses, you have to do it in King James, 1 Peter 2. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. See, there's a personal ethic of non-retaliation that's all through Scripture. And Jesus exemplifies it here. He could have done all kinds of things to Pilate, to these chief priests. He did nothing. When reviled, he reviled not again. And I think this is, Peter tells us, this is a pattern for us. When we're under places where we're being attacked for being Christian or being despised for being a different kind of person, not fitting into the culture, do we attack back? Or do we love back? Peter, sorry, Pilate, has this custom to release somebody. And Pilate says, what should I do? Now again, this is Pilate. He's the ultimate authority of everything. He's got soldiers and all kinds of things to do what he wants. And he seeks direction from the rioting crowd. What in the world is going on here? This is a tyrant. And he's saying to the crowd, what do you want? Well, why is he a coward at this point? If you do some of the historical background on Pilate, you'll see that he came in very strong, made some serious mistakes. And now he started in 26, this is 33, so he's seven years into his tenure governor before he's going to be exiled and killed. He's beginning to realize that his job is in peril. And he's trying to work the crowds here, I think is what's happening. But his wife sends a message, Claudia, sends him a message and says, don't do it. I'm sure they processed this the night before. And once again, God speaks through a dream to a Gentile woman, Claudia, who sends a message to her husband. And as we see all the way back to, well, from the beginning of the Bible, really, God speaks in dreams to powerful people. It doesn't mean all dreams are revelation from God, but some are. 
And Claudius says, don't have anything to do with this righteous man. He's getting nowhere. <laughs> he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood. It's your responsibility. Pilate is now echoing exactly what the priest just did. What's that to us? It's your responsibility. Now he says, no, I'm innocent. It's your responsibility. So what he's doing here, I'm innocent of this man's blood. He's professing his innocence. Frankly, that's not the way to get forgiveness. It's your responsibility. It's up to you guys. Now look at this, and Jesus there is silent the whole time. Jesus says nothing. He is accepting the condemnation of those people who desperately claim to be innocent, the priests and Pilate, and in a bit the crowds are going to do a weird thing. Now look at this again. Water can never, ever wash away blood, the guilt of sin. Remember the soul that sinneth it shall die? Water will never do it. Profession of innocence will never do it. The only thing that can take care of the penalty of death, and that death is fundamentally separation from God, is blood. And the blood that works, of course, is the blood of Jesus. Water will never wash away sin. There's something else that comes up here. You look at this, and he says, which one do you want? Do you want which one do you want me to release to you, says the governor? Barabbas, they said. What shall I do with Jesus who called Messiah? Crucify him. What can you created? They call a lot of crucify him. What's happening? The priests are manipulating the crowd. The priests are manipulating the crowd for their own ends. And I can't help but think of what's happening in our society today where crowds are being manipulated by power brokers for their own ends. We can think of the protests that happened downtown. Many of them well-intentioned, but frankly, nothing's changed in the black lives of Portland. Our city is defiled, graffitied, businesses are closed because of that. I can't help that these crowds were manipulated. The June, January 6th insurrectionists arrayed on their capital, manipulated by crowds for their own ends. We must, must, must be careful about being manipulated by crowds. It's not left versus right. It's the powerful people are working behind the scenes to manipulate us to achieve their ends. We must be thoughtful, gospel-guided community that's following the way of Jesus, not the way of power brokers, lest we be manipulated by crowds. Jesus Barabbas, who do you want? Now, some of your translations leave out the Jesus. It's a textual issue. I think that Jesus should go there. It's easy to think why Jesus would be taken out by copyists because Jesus is the name of our Savior. But Jesus is also a very common name, and I think it probably should be there. So the NIV 2011 has, has it there, Jesus Barabbas. And look at that name, Barabbas, Bar-Abba. If you look in Aramaic, Bar means son. Abba, of course, means father. This is Jesus, son of the father. 
The other Jesus, who's called Messiah, we immediately hyperlink back to Matthew 3. We need a hyperlink back to the transfiguration in Matthew 17. And remember that God the Father says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. So we, the priests are manipulating. Which Jesus do you want? Do you want Jesus, Son of the Father, a murderous insurrectionist, the way of violence? Or do you want Jesus, Son of the Father, a peacemaker who overcomes evil with good, the way of our Savior? And that choice is still here today. Which Jesus do we follow? The way of retaliation, the way of violence, the way of political power? Or Jesus the Messiah who says, let's make true peace. Not keep peace, but make peace. And overcome evil. Never under, don't tolerate evil, but overcome it with good. This phrase... When Jesus says, or Pilate says, it's your responsibility, and they say, his blood is on us and our children forever. This is one of the most abused phrases in the entire Bible. Because much of Christendom has said, see, the Jews said, we are Christ killers, we're responsible for his death, the guilt is upon us and our children forever, and all kinds of anti-Jewish hatred has been a part of Christendom, including some of the greatest leaders Chrysostom, the golden tongue preacher of the 4th century, Jerome, the brilliant Bible translator of the 5th century, Luther, leader of the Reformation, incredibly anti-Jewish in what they're doing and many others. This is not, that's a terrible misunderstanding. The place this works out is in the destruction of the temple. And what the Jews did at that point by rejecting Messiah led to the destruction of the temple less than 40 years later. Yes, there was a responsibility. That's why the temple was destroyed. It has nothing to do. And when you heard the anti-Semitism, as it's called, anti-Jewish stuff that comes up so commonly in Christianity, that's a lie. That's the serpent at work. It really is. Please do that right. The soldiers stripped him, mocked him, twisted together a crown of thorns, you often see a crown of thorns as an instrument of torture. It probably isn't. It would look something like this. They took some thorn branches and wove it into a crown, and it has the long spikes. But probably the spikes are more the ancient crown, just to show you what I mean, if you've seen the Statue of Liberty. See her crown? What is it there? It's the spikes that stick up. In any crown has stuff sticking up, and the thorns were mocking ways to say, yeah, there's your crown. It's probably not an instrument of torture. It's more an instrument of mockery, and there's a huge, huge torment with that. Spit on him. What became of mockery became violence. And I find myself thinking what happened in that back room with the priest soldiers and now with Pilate soldiers. I'm personally convinced that Jesus was sexually assaulted back there because I know what soldiers do to soldiers when the boss says, game. He suffered terribly, taking all of our shame, all of our brokenness, all of our guilt, all of our horror into his own life to bring redemption even in the worst evil that can possibly happen. 
Worship team, do you want to come up? We're going to sing here in just a minute. But we're still facing this choice. We're still facing this choice. Which Jesus will we follow? I'm a bit of a news freak. Uh, I end up getting subscribed to newspapers I want nothing to do with. I can't even unsubscribe from them because they want their message in my box, ranging all the way from extremely liberal to extremely conservative. And I look at them because I want to see what the picture is of the church. And what I find is that Christians are being called to the way of Jesus Barabbas, the way of violence, the way of we've got to take over our country, we've got to save our country from them, whoever them is, depending on which side of the political ledger you're on. And to be angry and responsive, I see the, the fights over masks, and I find, are you kidding me? I mean, wear a mask or not, that's kind of up to you, but to fight over it? You should wear a mask, by the way. But don't fight over it. And I see Christians fighting each other and fighting the world over all kinds of stuff. And the Jesus we're called to follow is not the Jesus who punishes sin without mercy. It's the Jesus who brings mercy to terrible sinners so that they can be redeemed. Now, if they continue in their sin, there will be punishment. Absolutely. But the Jesus I follow overcomes evil with good. He does not stomp evil out with violence. And we're being called to this all the time. Yeah, you're hearing political side of things, but the ethic of non-retaliation is a Christian ethic that's clear in Scripture. Political kinds of things, different kind of thing. He who did nothing wrong was condemned for everything. So we have, who have done everything wrong could be condemned for nothing. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's true for some of you who have never met Jesus. You don't have to be stuck in your sin like Judas was. You don't have to be left in your despair. But it's for Christians too. Because you've been a Christian for long doesn't mean that you're not facing the serpent's condemnation or maybe your conscience condemnation. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There's freedom and forgiveness. There's healing and restoration because of what he chose to do in what he does. The last word of our phrase, verse 31, is to crucify. These soldiers are going to take him out and they're going to crucify him, the most terrible form of death ever done. Most terrible form of death ever done. And I find myself asking, who is responsible for Jesus' death? Is it the Jews who said, your blood's on us and our children forever? Well, one level, yes. How about Pilate? How about the political powers are aimed against him to save their own political power? Yeah. But see, when it comes right down to us, who's responsible for Jesus' death? Frankly, it's me. It's me. Oh, I didn't take a hammer and hammer in the nails. I didn't mock him. And... But see, my sin that led him to go through what he went through. It's my sin. It's your sin.
It's your sin. It's our sin. That Jesus willingly took to himself so we can be free from condemnation, free from guilt, free from shame, free from despair because of what he did. Look at what crucifixion looks like. This is from the History Channel movie of Jesus' life. Very well done. The crucifixion scene is remarkably accurate for History Channel. The mocking sign above his head. The people gathered together to watch him, many of them mocking him as he's up there. And I could just imagine Jesus looking down on the people mocking him. But see, he was also looking down on his mother. He's looking at Mary Magdalene. He's working at Mary Clopas. He's looking at John, his disciple, recognizing there was people come to the cross because they want the forgiveness. And see, that's the call for all of us, really. That's the call. The gospel is that God, through Jesus, heals and forgives any who will come to him. Non-believer, long-time Christian, we need that forgiveness. We need that healing. We need that relational wholeness because he gives freedom from death. And it's no matter how desperate the sin at any point in our life, there's freedom, there's forgiveness, there's healing. And I call you at this Easter season, come to Jesus. Because as we're going to sing here, I love this song, Death Was Arrested. I love the song. I love the song. Your love made a way to let mercy come in when death was arrested and my life began. Because that's what Jesus was doing. He's being tormented, tortured, so that we can be free and death is arrested. Amen. He has done so much for us. I'm thinking of a story I'm being involved with just currently. A strong Christian man, godly heritage, young adult convert, and his self-image of himself is he is dog poop. And his whole life is messed up because he can't believe what he just sang. And I'm working redemption in his life to help him change that fundamental identity because he's saying, I'm dog poop. I have to do all this stuff to punish myself in some hope that I might someday be able to look at myself in the mirror with respect. And see, the message of Jesus for this man and for all of us is the only real foundation of life and respect is the honor that Jesus gives us. Then we build our self-respect on that. But see, when he's been hurt as badly as he's been hurt, and many of you are like that, many of you are like that, all the message you've gotten from the serpent that said you got to do it yourself, you don't, you don't. The foundation of the Sermon on the Mount, the foundation of rock, is the work that Jesus Christ did. He gives us his forgiveness. He gives us his honor. He gives us his hope. And the church of Jesus Christ represents that. So I want to call any of you, all of you. If you're here and you're bearing a weight of despair, bearing a weight of shame, bearing a weight of guilt, bearing a weight of aloneness, we'd love to help. We won't always get it right, but what you'll find, you saw earlier with Matt and Stephen up here and us gathered around him as leaders, we're a community of grace. We're a community of the Holy Spirit. We're a community that wants to lead with mercy to help people find holiness and invite you. 
Come to Jesus. Come to grace. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have done what you've done so that we can experience your forgiveness, your healing, your hope, your community. Holy Spirit, move among us to help us see ourselves in light of who you are, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They can see ourselves as children of the Lord Most High, with Jesus as our brother, who stands with the paraclete as our helper. Move us here as Grace Community Church to make this be a place of mercy and hope and restoration and healing and grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go change the world with that message. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.